0: Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the way in which you have revealed yourself through it. Thinking about uh, these passages, especially um, the Isaiah passage and the Mark passage in which you came to be a servant and to show us what it means to follow you. Open our hearts and our minds to that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, I'll just say that uh, you know, we're going through the Psalms of Ascent, we're almost done, we're at Psalm 132, and this psalm, I don't know if you felt this way, but it feels a little bit different to me than the other Psalms of Ascent. The other Psalms of Ascent seem to be more focused on the present tense, or more focused on inviting us into acts of worship, whereas Psalm 132 focuses more on past events in the life of God's people, particularly past events in David's life. But even though this psalm has a a different feel to it, we can still understand how it became part of the Psalms of Ascent because, as we've said, the Psalms of Ascent were used by God's people as they were making their way up to Jerusalem three times a year to worship at at the great festivals. And that worship was centered around the temple. And so it makes sense that as the people of God are making their way to the temple for worship, part of what they were doing is recalling the history of the temple. They're remembering the history of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which is what the temple is built around. They're remembering both the negative aspects of their history, how they treated the Ark of the Covenant as a sort of talisman that they could uh, use and manipulate for their own ends or thought that they could, and it was taken away from the people of God and brought to um, the land of, uh, of the Philistines, as well as the positive aspects of their history, how David faithfully retrieved the Ark of the Covenant And brought it to Jerusalem and then of course the reward that David received in so doing this Davidic dynasty that he was promised and that's what this psalm is all about it's all about this interaction between David's um, act of faithful service and the Lord's gracious reward and you could see that even in the structure of the psalm if you can go to the next slides of how if you wouldn't mind you could see that it's sort of you could you can break this psalm up into two equal halves, nine verses each. And each half starts with a prayer for David. You see that in verses 1 and verse 10. And then you have sort of mirror sections on each half of the psalm. In verses 2 to 5, the first half speak of David's devotion, his faithful service to the Lord. And then that's mirrored in verses 11 and 12 by God's gracious reward to David. And then in verses six through nine, you see David's concern for God's presence. And then that's mirrored again in verses 13 to 18, um, which is all about God's presence in Zion. And you even see similar language in the mirror images. David swearing an oath to the Lord, the Lord swearing a vow or an oath to David. That's verses two and 11. God's dwelling place and his resting place being referred to in mirrored ways in verses seven and eight. And then verses 13 and 14, and then finally the priests being clothed with righteousness and, and the saints with shouts of joy, and verses 9 and verse 16. So you see it's sort of mirrored on both halves. And what it's doing is it's demonstrating this interaction between David's faithful service on one side and then God's gracious reward on the other side. And the idea of God rewarding faithfulness is nothing new in Scripture. These are just a couple of verses. If you go to the next slides of How, you can just see a few verses. First Samuel 26, uh, 23, the Lord rewards every person for their righteousness and faithfulness. Psalm 58, 11, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Proverbs 13, 21, disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. In Matthew 6, Jesus speaks of the Father rewarding um, those who give alms, pray and fast in secret. And then 2 John 1.8, uh, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. So I just want to, the full sort of breadth of Scripture has these references to reward. But there is a danger for us. And the danger is that we reduce faithfulness to the level of mere transaction. That's the danger that's before us. That we reduce the call to faithfully love and serve the Lord our God out of the abundance of a heart that has received the salvation that he has offered to us and freely given to us. That we reduce that merely to seeking a reward from God. And we turn our relationship with God into something that's just merely transactional. I'll do this for you if you reward me with this. And we see this danger, I think, at the heart of our Mark chapter 10 passage. In Mark chapter 10, James and John come up to Jesus, and they say, "Teacher, we want us—we uh, want you to do for us whatever we ask you." Which any parent knows is a, just a hilarious line. You know, they know they're not supposed to be asking for what they're about to ask for, but they're going to do it anyways. So they're trying to secure the answer before they even ask the question. But what they're doing is—it shows that it's purely transactional. It's not inviting Jesus into the process with them, to, to deliberate with them, to think about what's going on. It's not asking his opinion or his thoughts. It's simply saying, I want something from you, and I want you to give it to me. It's treating Jesus like a vending machine. And the thing that they're after in this case, uh, this, this transaction that they're looking for with Jesus, the thing that they're after is, is glory and honor. They want to sit at Jesus's right hand and at his left when he comes into his glory. They want a piece of that glory for themselves. That's the reward that they're chasing. And so what does Jesus do in Mark chapter 10? Well, Jesus, he ultimately reframes the conversation and he invites them to see that glory does not reside in chasing after rewards, but glory resides in self-sacrificial service. Glory in the kingdom of God is not about the reward that you receive at the end of a transaction Glory in the kingdom of God is about the grace that you experience in following Jesus in the practice of self-sacrificial love for the sake of the world. Anyone who would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. In our passage today, Jesus said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all for the Son of Man came not to serve uh, not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." That's where glory is found in loving self-sacrificial service in the way of Jesus. We do not seek glory as, as the end of a transaction Instead, Jesus invites us into acts of loving service where we experience his glory and his grace as we follow him in the way of the cross, which is none other than the way of life and peace. And so I wonder, can we read Psalm 132 with that lens of self-sacrifice and service? I think that we can. So if we look at the two scenes, that we see in Psalm 132. You have these two mirror scenes in Psalm 132. The first is the retrieval of the Ark of the Covenant, which of course you can read about in 1 Samuel 4-7. to That's sort of it going off to the Philistines and making its way back just across the border into Israel. 2 Samuel 6 and 1 Chronicles 13 is when David goes to retrieve the Ark of the Covenant. And then 2 Samuel 7, Um, is this promise of the Davidic dynasty. And it's worth noting that in 2 Samuel, you'll see these two stories very closely linked. One's chapter 6, the other's in chapter 7. So that might have inspired the psalmist in this way, or maybe it inspired um, the person who who put 2 Samuel together. But in both scenes, if we dig a little bit deeper, what we see, I think, is self-sacrifice at their heart. In the first scene, in in the retrieval of the ark, which is found in verses 1 through 9 of Psalm 132. If we look at the story in 2 Samuel 6, it tells us that David, as he brought the ark back to Jerusalem, you'll remember this, he danced before it. And he danced before it with abandon. So much so that his wife uh, looked at him and despised him because of the way that he did it, because of the way he dishonored himself in in this dancing. She says this, this is from 2 Samuel um, 6. How the king of Israel honored himself today. She's saying it sarcastically. How the king of Israel dishonored himself today. Uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows, shamelessly uncovers himself. So we don't know exactly what it means for David to have uncovered himself, whether he was fully naked or whether he just just down to his undergarments or what. But the point being here, David, in this moment of, experiencing God's presence coming back to Jerusalem, this ecstatic moment, was willing to self-sacrifice his own honor before all the people, simply as a response to the joy that he was experiencing in this particular moment. He was willing to sacrifice his honor in that story. His wife despised him. She saw it as this great dishonor. And in that culture, it would have been a dishonor. But David was willing to do it because this is what he felt like the Lord was leading him to at that moment. So I think there's, there's self-sacrifice at the heart of that story. In the second scene, um, the promise of the Davidic dynasty from 2 Samuel 7, which is what verses uh, 10 to 18 of Psalm 132 focus on, David there is expressing a desire to build the temple for God. I think it's a genuine desire for God's honor and God's glory. Um, he wants to build a house for the Ark of the Covenant. And like I said, I think this is a genuine uh, desire for David to honor God, but also it would have been wonderful for his legacy, would it have not? He would have been the unifying king, the warrior king, the the boundary-extending king, and he also would have been the temple-building king. That would have cemented his legacy in the lives of God's people. But in 2 Samuel 7, the prophet Nathan comes to David and he says the Lord doesn't want you to build a house for him instead God's going to build a house for you he's going to build this Davidic dynasty but what I want you to see is that though that promise was incredible it wasn't tangible it was unseen it took faith on David's part to be able to willing uh, to be willing to accept that that promise from God and trust that it would actually come to fruition in time And what he had to do was sacrifice this desire to cement his own legacy. He could have just said, thank you, Lord, that's wonderful, but I think I'm still going to build this temple for you. Because how amazing would that be if he was known as the temple-building king? For this promise that was unseen, this promise that he had to have faith to trust would come to fruition, he was willing to sacrifice his own legacy in order to trust in the Lord now. And so through that lens, I think that we can read Psalm 132, uh, that it's not simply saying um, that it's a psalm of faithfulness and reward, that it's that simple. But it truly is a psalm um, of faithfulness through the act of self-sacrifice and a desire for God's glory above all things that manifests itself in the reward of relationship with the Lord. Walking in covenant faithfulness is living dynamic relationship. It's not just transactions. That's the difference, right? A transaction is, is sort of dehumanizing. It's not about an ongoing dynamic relationship. But that was the reward that David received. It was this ongoing living relationship that he was stepping into with the Lord. And so the question that I'm left with um, after reading this psalm and thinking about the call to follow Jesus as a servant is, how does that happen? right? How does someone become a um, like David, and follow through on these types of acts of of great self-sacrifice in these moments. And I think that the answer lies not so much in watching what he does in those moments, but seeing that, or thinking about all the small, everyday acts of self-sacrifice that build the kind of character, that enable you to be the kind of person who can do these acts of self-sacrifice on these larger scales. It's like the parable of the tenant or the talents when Jesus just gives a little bit, right, to see how we're going to handle it before he gives us more. It's not just about these grandiose moments in our lives, it's the everyday opportunities to live self-sacrificially and love those around us. And so I come back to Mark chapter 10 and I can't help but think about what was going through Jesus' mind um, in the middle of verse 39. If you can go to that, that passage for a second, I'm just going to read it to you again. James and John comes to, come to Jesus, and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized. And they quickly said, we are able. To which Jesus said, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And I just want you to think for a minute about that moment that I highlighted there, just to try to extend it for a second. What happens in that moment between the disciples' ignorant statement of, we are able, of course we can do this, and Jesus saying, you will in fact be baptized with that baptism, and you will in fact have to drink that cup, which is the cup of martyrdom. But In that moment, they have no idea what they're saying. And so I just invite you to consider for a moment, what was going through Jesus' mind between those two statements? Because there's actually decades that pass there. For James, it was, you know, if if legend tells us, it's about 30 years until this moment, until the time he actually was martyred, and for John, it was about 60 years. So there's decades that happen between between those uh, lines. So what is it Jesus is thinking in that moment? What does he see in that moment? What I want to suggest is that one thing he he sees and knows is that he sees the Holy Spirit descending on these two men, which will empower them to be the kind of people who can actually drink that cup and be baptized with that baptism. He knows that's coming, and he sees that. And I also think he sees all the small ways every day for the next 30 years and 60 years they are learning to live into that vow. Where they're learning small acts of self-sacrificial love that make them the kind of people that can actually fulfill that vow. And I think he sees all that time in between. That great act that he points to is built on countless smaller acts of loving service. Faithful everyday self-sacrifice. For those around you. And I think the same goes for us as well. That our lives are not just about those great mountaintop experiences, but about everyday small actions of loving self sacrifice and loving service to those around us. And that's what matters and that those things build us into the people, they form us and shape us to be the kind of people who can live out loving self-sacrifice in those greater moments. But it won't come just by waiting for those big moments. It actually comes by living it out every day in small, everyday ways. And so Mother Teresa's words uh, rang in my ears this week. There are no great acts, but only small acts done with great love. I think that's true. So what are, these are the questions I think for us this week, what are those small acts that you're being called to to self-sacrificially love those around you? Who are those people? Like, Just take a moment and think, who are the specific people in your life that you're called to lovingly self-sacrifice for and serve and care for? Are those people different from you? We live in this very polarized world right now where I think we want to sort of retract into our own safe spaces. What might it look like to actually self-sacrificially move forward in service to those who are different from you? Hold different ideas, hold different views. What is a concrete act that God is calling you to? It certainly does not mean that we're called to be doormats for the world or um, that we're to have no boundaries. I want to be very clear about that. Jesus, when you read the Gospels, he, he knew how to say no, and no was part of his act of self-sacrificial service to those around him. He knew how to get away and be with his, his father and receive ministry from his father in the ways that he needed to. He wasn't just looking um, to go to the cross for the sake of the cross. What does Hebrews say? It was for the joy that was set before him. It wasn't the cross in itself. The cross was a means to that joy to open up salvation to the whole world. So he was willing to endure it. He was willing to self-sacrifice for the thing that God was calling him to. And I think the same goes for us. We're not just looking to be martyrs. We're looking to lovingly, faithfully serve the Lord Jesus Christ for the joy that is set before us as well. Because in doing so, um, we experience God's goodness, his grace, his mercy, his love. When we follow his lead to lovingly self-sacrifice those around us, whom he calls us to as we're attentive to the Holy Spirit, then we experience his joy in those moments. So how is God calling you to act, um, to acts of service, small, faithful, everyday acts of service, to self-sacrificially love those around you? That's what I would invite you to consider today. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.